Irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. You're listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir, only on LA Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. And the theme of my show and core principle of this podcast is that we are changing consciousness one conversation at a time. I would love to connect with you through my website, NOLA Therapy. It's the abbreviation for New Orleans Los Angeles Therapy.com. And I invite you to join my email list. There's a link at NOLA Therapy. I am available to work with you as your intuitive practitioner in person at either my New Orleans or Los Angeles physical office locations. I do Skype, phone, and FaceTime sessions with clients worldwide. So don't let your location keep you from reaching out to me. And I've really enjoyed the emails I've been receiving about how much you've enjoyed my guests and and just the positive theme of this podcast. Thank you. And keep those emails coming. Lisa at NOLA Therapy. I appreciate your support so much and encourage you to keep subscribing and rating my podcast on all the platforms where you can find podcasts. I'm on iTunes. iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio. I also have a YouTube channel now that I invite you to check out. I upload all these shows to that channel each week. And follow me on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. I am under NOLA Therapy. If you want to become a patron of my podcast, you can learn more about that through the campaign I have with Patreon. And that information can be found at patreon.com forward slash all things therapy. I am just head over heels as I was just telling my two guests about interviewing them today. We have two authors on our show. They co-wrote a book together called The Ten Worlds. The 10 Worlds, T-E-N, the number 10, The New Psychology of Happiness. And we are going to be with Dr. Ash Eldafrawi, who is a clinical psychologist. He's a forensic examiner, a drug abuse counselor, a certified marriage and family therapist, and he has held various teaching positions in both social and clinical psychology. And we are also with his co-author, Dr. Alex Lickerman. He is the Director of Primary Care at the University of Chicago and a former assistant professor of medicine there. He's written for Psychology Today, USA Today, The Huffington Post. He's been cited on NPR, Playboy Magazine, Men's Health, The New York Times, Time, and this is just a few of those places. So I'm just delighted to be speaking to you, Dr. Ash and Dr. Alice, about your book, The Ten Worlds. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, that's great. Oh. What an intro. Oh, good. I'm glad you like it. Where Where would you gentlemen like to begin us on this journey into happiness, what that is, how we can hold on to it longer, how our belief systems play into our happiness? All those things. I guess, uh, you know, the, the paradigm of the book that we sort of created is a bit complex, so maybe 
we could just start with an overview of, of the model and then you could uh, ask questions as, it, as they come up. I'd love that. Cool. So uh, the basic thesis of the book is this, that everybody, you know, wants to be happy, as we know. And, and when they think about what they mean by wanting to be happy, they really mean they want to be happy uh, permanently, like, you know, all the time or at least uh, in general, most of the time for the rest of their lives. And our, our thesis is that the, the single thing that prevents people from being happy is not at all what they think it is. It actually uh, has to do with the beliefs they have about what happiness is itself. And it's those beliefs that actually create, uh, you know, 10 different life states. And it's these life states that sort of set the ceiling on how happy they can be. So I'll give you an example of what I mean. So one of the, the core delusions, as we call them, or beliefs about what um, happiness is or what people be, the idea of happiness that we call world of animality. And basically people trapped in this world who basically who get up every morning looking to please themselves to experience physical pleasure uh, tend to be uh, trapped by their addiction to physical pleasure. So this may be people who are addicted to drugs or alcohol or sex or eating or anything you can imagine that gives physical pleasure because they really believe that is the way to be happy. And as anyone who uh, works in the field of mental health knows, a life of, of, of addiction to pleasure or of, of pursuit of pleasure is often a, a miserable life. And so that sets a certain ceiling, a limit on the degree of happiness that people can achieve that when you really think about it, is determined purely by what they believe they need to be happy. Yes. Yeah. yeah and in fact, in fact, it's interesting that Alex would choose that, that particular belief, uh, the world of animality, because they, there was just a recent uh, global study on happiness, not sure if you saw it, that ranked the different, the different countries and where they rank on a happiness scale index. And they actually, the U.S. ended up ranking really low, I think 38 or something, you know, some, some really low number. And when they were trying to hypothesize and look at the reason behind it, a lot of the psychologists and sociologists were saying they actually believe the reason behind it is because of this growth of people's addiction to pleasurable things. Uh, and, we, and society continues to create them, more and more of them, uh, the latest one being sort of binge watching, for example. Um, and... But everybody's realizing that, that, that those addictions ultimately don't at all move you towards uh, happiness and quite, quite the opposite. So it's really interesting how the, 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 what's happening globally might be really relevant to that particular world. And that makes sense to me with the, just the pursuit of happiness outside of ourself through activities, through substances, through experiences, and there can, there can be a healthy range of that for sure. But, you know, I'm thinking as I'm talking to both of you, to, for our listeners to also know what these 10 worlds are, because once I finally wrap my head around what you both were saying, it really, the material just came alive. And, and you all talk about these 10 worlds that we dwell in. And typically, much like a love language, that we, we identify with one of the 10 worlds as the way that we derive our happiness. Would that be an accurate yeah. description? So would it be useful to sort of go through them in order? And, I'd love uh, that. Yeah. Something? Yeah. Okay. So I'll start and then ask you can. Maybe we'll I'll go through this. So the, the the bottom world, the lowest world, in which the level of happiness uh, you experience is at the bottom, and in fact, it is the world of suffering. It's called the world of hell, and that is essentially the world of suffering. And that may be uh, a world you enter just momentarily when, say, uh, you're physically injured, or it could be your basic life tendency where you are depressed and are suffering uh, emotional distress constantly uh, because of that depression. That would be the world of hell. The next world above that is the world of hunger. And the idea here is 
the core delusion that generates this world of hunger is the, is the belief that you, in order to be happy, you have to get what you want, right? Mm-hmm. We all have desires. We all have wants. And we, we get this narrow-minded way of thinking that we can only be happy if the things that we want are given to us. And this is a world in which we become obsessed often with what we want and, and expect it to fill us up and make us happy people. And, and, of course, when we get what we want, we generally are happy for a little while. But then our happiness level tends to return down to its baseline. Uh, and so then we're, we're off looking for the next thing, the next uh, desire uh, that we think is the right desire that's going to finally make us happy permanently. The next world after that is animality. We already talked about that. And then uh, above, up above there uh, is the world of anger. The world of anger is, is a little bit um, misleading in the name. It's not necessarily about the emotion anger. It's actually about uh, the belief that in order to be happy, you have to be special. In fact, you have to be superior to everyone around you to make you so special. And this is a world that's driven often by insecurity, but it is, it is created by the belief that to be happy, you, that there has to be something special and unique and superior about you. And anger, the emotion anger, is a, is a tool of the ego, which is often threatened in this world, that's used to, to dominate other people, again, in the service of making you feel superior so that you can be happy. Josh, one of you, I'll hand the baton off to you and you can talk about tranquility up to the Ohio world. So the world of tranquility, which happens to be my world, uh, is the world where you believe that happiness comes from avoiding pain. Mm-hmm. And that's just not about avoiding physical pain. It's about avoiding emotional pain or generally negative consequences. And so you can imagine that's a world where you might try to really maintain the status quo. Uh, there's reluctant, reluctance to kind of challenge uh, particular circumstances because you're trying to, you know, think about it as playing it safe. Uh, you place way too much of your happiness based on having the right outcome of the decisions that you make. So you fear making the wrong decision, which leads you to indecision. Um, obviously, it's a world filled with anxiety because there's no way you can control your external circumstances. But if you're living in, in, in fear or worry about negative things happening to you, I might lose my job. I might get my, my, my girlfriend might leave me, whatever I might be. It's a world kind of trying to control the uncontrollable. Um, but a lot of people believe that to be happy, they, if, they can avoid, if they can avoid negative consequences, they can be happy. Uh, the next is the world of rapture. And this is where, uh, this is the belief that our happiness comes from the very specific attachments to things that we have in our life. So this is about feeling like um, your happiness is dependent on those things that you have uh, to make you happy. Um, whether it's the happiness you get from uh, a simple possession, like a great car, or from having the right spouse, or from having the right job, uh, it's the belief that you know that the happiness is derived from having those attachments and collecting them in your life to create a life that's filled with joy uh, from those things. And let me add here: this is, in fact, what most people, when they think about what happiness is, how they think about it. Right? You can only be happy you have something to be happy about, meaning there's some external attachment or, or some possession you have. And when you think about it, it brings you joy. And that is actually how people arrange their lives and often focus their lives on, on figuring out what it is uh, that, will, that, that they need to have, they think, to be happy and doing everything they can to hang on to it. And, and I want to point out, it's not that this is wrong, right? It's not that, that right. the, the happiness in the world of rapture is a false happiness or it's an undesirable happiness. The problem with this happiness is that it is temporary, that all things that we, uh, we gain, we gain them, we get this sort of hit of happiness. The metaphor we talk about in the book is it's like chewing gum, but right? at first it's, it tastes very sweet, 
but invariably the continue, as you continue to chew it or as you continue to have an attachment, the sweetness of having it gradually fades until you're sort of back where you started. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, so you have to keep going back to the well or you have to sort of, you know, having these attachments does not change you into an intrinsically happier person, uh, but enables you to experience joy when you think about those things. But we don't spend most of our time thinking about those things after we've had them for a while. So we, we end up needing to look for other things. We're having yeah, to return way, to those things and think about the consciously. Yeah. And by the way, Lisa, you'll probably recognize it's interesting, too, because in some of the worlds we've named so far, that we, uh, you and I have seen people in, in therapy specifically because they've lost these attachments that, they, that were at one point were making them happy and now are making yes. them miserably. So it's those very same things that you believe are the source of your happiness that can ultimately be the source of your greatest suffering and plunge you into the world of hell. Uh, where, you know, and you and I kind of are familiar with that. Absolutely. And what's, inter- and what's interesting as we go into the next higher world, you'll notice that it, it, it starts getting a little bit slightly different in terms of the types of attachments, but, but they're equally uh, susceptible fragile. to, yeah, they're fragile. So for, the next, for example, the next world is the world of learning. And now we get yeah. into what we call the higher worlds. Uh, and this here, the, the, the belief or the delusion is that to be happy, we need to accomplish or experience something meaningful. And what I'll do is, and this, this, this world is actually Alex's world. So I'll let him describe yeah. it. He yeah. Lived, yeah. Lived in so it. here the idea is, the idea is what we're attached to in the world of learning is the creation of value, right? People need to feel their lives are meaningful and they do meaningful things so that they have that sense. And that's what makes them happy. And again, I want to also reiterate here, we call these beliefs the core delusions, not because they actually fail to make us happy, but because they they don't make us happy permanently. They don't actually change us into permanently happy people. So again, it's not as though we would argue, you know, you should uh, avoid these worlds. In fact, the world of learning is sort of what I've dedicated my life to and what I, no matter how hard I try, cannot shake a belief that in order to be happy, I need to create valuable things. Uh, and, and this is, you know, it really does create a great sense of, of joy and it's a, a, a great sense of purpose. The challenge, again, though, is you have to keep going back to the well. You have to keep doing things that are meaningful. And, and while there's nothing wrong with that, um, again, anything that is based on attachment, by definition, is it, it creates a happiness we call relative happiness, meaning it is dependent on that attachment. And we think a lot of people imagine that's the best type of happiness they can hope for. And if they can just find the right type of attachment, uh, to seek and attach to, uh, that's, that's how they create a happy life. And while that isn't um, incorrect, we, we think there's more, and we'll talk about that in the next world. The world after the world of learning is its twin world, the world of realization, in which the type of meaning we're attached to is more of the meaning that comes from self-development. People who are focused on developing themselves, improving themselves uh, as people, and, and improving their mastery of, of certain skills, uh, but developing themselves in some way and derive the greatest sense of joy from that. Uh, the world above that is the world of compassion. And the belief that drives or creates this world is the belief that in order to be happy, we have to help other people become happy too. That we derive happiness from providing value to other people. And in fact, we would argue, uh, and there's some evidence in the literature we, we would say, to suggest that in this world, this is the greatest joy it is possible to attain when you are attaining joy from an outside attachment, in this case, the attachment being to the happiness of others. And it's not at all a world to be avoided. Uh, it's actually a world to be sought, but it's still, to, to, you know, in the end, is a world that makes you vulnerable loss of that attachment. And then we come to the 10th world, which is the world of enlightenment. And um, we, there's a lot to talk about here, but essentially 
the idea is this, that enlightenment is not, we would argue, this mystical, fairy tale, far away, maybe not for real state that can only be attained by Buddhist monks meditating in caves and maybe was attained by the historical Buddha himself, but is in fact a reproducible, identifiable uh, brain state that is available to anyone uh, in the same way the state of anger and or uh, hell is available. And mm. that is a particular belief, uh, what we could call a core truth, that when that is stirred up in you uh, deeply enough and powerfully enough, will create that state. And what's interesting is that if you look through the writings of uh, people throughout history, in every culture, in every society, throughout all the time since you know there has been writings that document uh, the way people have thought, people have describing this state, and they describe it in remarkably. Uh, similar ways. They, they use different language. They may interpret it differently depending upon their pre-existing beliefs. Uh, but ultimately, the, the characteristics of the state are really quite constant. And so that led us to think that there has to be something about the brain itself that, uh, you know, is generating the state in the subjective experience. So we can talk about that, uh, to, you know, more if you want to. But in general, this is the state in which um, you look upon the world uh, and, and see it as sublime and see it as larger and more beautiful and more, uh, and, and more good than you could possibly take in uh, and contain within you know, the sphere of your vision, your consciousness. Uh, and it is, it is a, uh, a belief in that and a perception of that that yields the feeling of awe. And awe is a very interesting emotion that has not been well studied in the literature but that we believe actually is not just the gateway to enlightenment, but is the experience of enlightenment itself. And, and if for you or any of your listeners who have ever experienced this state where they, you feel suddenly um, at one with your surroundings, you feel this boundless sense of love and, and goodwill towards everyone and everything around you, and this, this transcendent feeling of joy and inexpressibility, inability to really describe you know, mm-hmm. what it is you're feeling, a total lack of fear, uh, and um, and you feel like your 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 higher self, your your more most wise, compassionate, joyous self. And Ash and I both write about individual experiences we had. Uh, we wrote about in the book where we had these experiences and sort of had a glimpse of what that life state is like. Uh, and as we went into the to the research and reading it, it became clear that the science is beginning to catch up and to actually not only describe um, what the brain is doing in people who are experiencing this state, but also give us some clues about how we might more consistently make it our life state. You know, so if, I I can, to, if I were to summarize it, the difference yeah. between the nine lower worlds is that those nine lower worlds are about having an attachment that determines how happy you're going to be. The, the 10th world, the world of alignment is about perceiving the world in a particular way. It is not dependent on attachment. It's dependent on perception. And so as such, if you can cultivate that perception, it could be a type of happiness that cannot be taken from you, no matter what may happen in your life. Yes, and I can tell you guys that I really saw myself and and to our listeners in the pages of your book talking about the world of realization, about um, to be happy, I need to keep growing and expanding. And while that feels really beautiful and satisfying a lot of the time, there are also moments, I think because of my attachment to that, that belief and attaining happiness through that way, it, it can become exhausting. Like I'm sure for you, Dr. Alex, in the world of learning, and for you, Dr. Ash, the world of tranquility that I read that you identify, have identified with, that it's like this constant 
seeking and and curiosity does play a role in our happiness that that you both write about in a positive way yet it was it was like an aha moment to realize to really embrace an affirmation i have on my computer i am enough that i'm enough right now and i'm sure people listening relate to this you know wanting to feel like we're enough yet comparing ourselves to others or to our own self and just how that that is depleting and, and finding well, that, our happiness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that you're, you're putting your finger on a very important point is that each of these worlds, even the higher worlds that seem mostly positive, have a downside. So for me in the world of learning, the problem is it's very easy to become obsessed with the creation of meaning and value, the point where I sometimes struggle to, to water my relationships and maintain my relationships. And in the world of realization, you know, this obsession with constantly improving oneself and trying to do better, you can become very negative about yourself and actually feel inadequate in your striving to become better. Uh, begin to judge yourself very harshly and actually suffer as a result. Mm-hmm. So how do you both work with your clients that, that come to you? You have some beautiful stories in the book about specific individuals and couples that you have worked with that I was crying reading some of them because they were just so deep and potent with things that, that people are coming to you both with. Yeah. Well, you know, interestingly, you know, armed with this, with this, this paradigm, it becomes an interesting journey because you can work with your clients at this point to try to understand what beliefs have them in their grip. Because the more you can help your clients or anybody you care about who is suffering in any way or can't seem to figure out how to stay happy all the time. You know, we all know these people who are constantly struggling, going up and down, up and down like a yo-yo. You know, the question is helping them examine why. Like, and, and one way to do that is helping them ask, you know, ask the question of, you know, what do they really believe they need to be happy and help them examine and understand what those beliefs are. And, and Alex made the point uh, earlier that, you know, if you, everybody has different beliefs of what happiness is, but what we've discovered is that the, the hundreds and thousands of millions of beliefs people have, we believe fundamentally slot into one of these nine core delusions, kind of like, you know, the, the, the beliefs of beliefs sort of thing. And, uh, and so, and then if we can identify, help people identify which world they tend to gravitate more toward because everybody can enter any of these worlds at any time, but everybody has, you know, their, their, their basic kind of core tendency that they, that they like me and tranquility and Alex and learning. And then the more you can kind of understand that, the more you can start seeing the impact it has on your life, the more you can ensure that it doesn't get stirred up so much all the time and, mm. and cause you to suffer. And I like that's, that. that's been a really interesting way to help people, you know, and, and you see the lights sort of come on. I mean, for me, for example, it's been incredibly freeing. I, I, I just recognizing that I, I, I have a tendency towards placing way too much value on my happiness on getting decisions right and protecting myself. Like, oh, you know, when I face decisions around job or moving or kids or anything like, or making a big investment or something like that, I used to become really have a lot of anxiety and be sort of paralyzed with indecision. I'd go to all my friends and walk through. Alex would be the victim of a lot of that. Uh, as I try to process it, but now I find myself recognizing that that's, that's the delusion and that my happiness is not contained within that decision. And in fact, most of the time I was actually even wrong before that what I thought was going to make me happy ended up not making me happy. Mm. And that has been an incredibly freeing experience for me and allowed me to approach life and big decisions in a very different way. That's really anxiety free. So that's the kind of thing I try to replicate when I talk to uh, the clients or friends. Uh, gentlemen, we're going to take a quick break 
And we will be right back in one minute to continue this conversation. And I have two questions for you guys when we come back. Awesome. Indeed, listening is the new reading. With Audible, you can listen to an unlimited amount of books at home, in your car, at the gym, anywhere on the go. With over 180,000 audiobooks to choose from, for you, the listener of all things therapy, Audible is offering you a free audiobook download and a month-long subscription for you to try them out. Visit audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy now and enjoy yourself and friends find a purpose in life then you are in the right place and be a part of the crowdfunding campaign of patreon.com forward slash all things therapy with lisa ty here as she initiates a one-on interaction with inspiring authors healing experts and spiritual directors join the league of heroes of this generation by contributing your quota between a dollar up to a hundred dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash all things therapy let's make the world free of suicide poverty depression and in all, make the world a better place for everyone. Welcome back to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. Today, I am with Dr. Ash and Dr. Alex. They are co-authors of the book we are discussing titled The Ten Worlds, The New Psychology of Happiness. So, gentlemen, I have two questions, and however you would like to address them, um, First of all, would you define for our listening audience, what is happiness and can we truly feel happy all the time? Ooh, great questions. Um, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take a whack and ask you can add into whatever you think. So yep. in the book, we, we define happiness as um, in a very specific way. It's not just a good feeling, a positive emotion, because there are a lot of positive emotions, right? There's gratitude, love. Um, curiosity, uh, a lot of positive emotions. Happiness or joy is what we argue is uh, not just a, a positive feeling, but the best positive feeling we are capable of having. And what's really interesting is that neuroscience is now beginning to actually identify what part of the brain or parts of the brain joy or that happiness is being generated from. And it is, in fact, a, a physically different location than where, for example, the feeling of pleasure comes from. But what's very interesting is that without the ability to feel pleasure, we can't feel joy. It's as if pleasure sits inside happiness in a very real way, but happiness or joy uh, is an extra dimension. So it really is, we define it that way most simply as the most positive feeling we are able to, to feel. And is it possible to feel um, happiness all the time? I don't think that it is. Um, on the other hand, it's also possible to feel more than one feeling at a time. So you might argue that a person in the state of enlightenment who is continually perceiving the world around them is sublime and in a continual state of awe, can still feel pain, can still feel sadness, can feel anger, all those emotions that are, are considered to be negative, um, while still feeling joy at the same time. So um, because I haven't myself achieved enlightenment and I'm not in that state all the time, I don't know for sure. But I think theoretically it's possible that, that you could feel that state of awe continuously while still feeling negative emotions as well. That makes sense to me. What would you say, Dr. Ash, about these two questions? Well, I, I, so I actually sort of agree with Alex. And I think that, you know, I'll add another dimension to it because I, I think that it's important that we make the distinction between, you know, relative happiness and absolute happiness. And so I do think that um, for a lot of people, 
happiness is around is defined more in terms of relative happiness, which is kind of this joy that you get from uh, from the attachment you have in your life. And, I, and we, even though we argue that's that's potentially temporary and susceptible, uh, it's a very legitimate definition of what what happiness is. Um, however, uh, I also believe that there is a greater type of happiness that does come from how you perceive the world. And what's, in, and what's interesting to me about a happiness that comes from how you perceive the world is it means that that's accessible to everybody at any time. Mm. Because unlike attachments, which require either you cultivate them, you have them, or there are certain circumstances around them where the effort you make to hold on to them, which could be, you know, as you said, really hard to do, uh, enlightenment, you can you know, enter that state just by being able to induce a sense of awe, which is available to anybody. I think, I think what people need to try to work on and try to figure out is for each individual person, what induces that for them? Because it's not something you can sort of fabricate or construct. It's something you actually have to, um, you know, find what, how you find your own personal way in which the experience can be triggered for you. But I do believe that's accessible at any time, whether or not it's, you can, you can constantly maintain it. It's hard for me to say that, um, for say that, because I don't think very many people are able to, to generate all, you know, at every moment they're, they're awake. Yes. And you, you both also talk about in this book extensively, and I, I'm really on board with this, the, how our belief systems affect our happiness and well-being and how our thoughts are a large part of that. And for myself, I'm a meditator and I meditate daily and I found it immensely helpful to shift my beliefs, which which then affect my emotions in a more positive sense. You also talk about mindfulness in your book and being curious. So can you both address the issues of, of um, shifting our belief systems and mindfulness and curiosity as it applies to yeah. our feeling happy? Absolutely. So, you know, uh, changing what you believe sounds on the surface like this easy thing to do, but in fact, we would argue it's one of the most difficult things to do in life. And when a, when a belief has really embedded itself in your, in your consciousness, uh, it's incredibly difficult to dislodge. And this is especially true, as we all know, from working with, with patients and clients for dysfunctional beliefs, right? Beliefs that really do not serve us, but that we cannot seem to shake. And so how does one you know, make that transition because I completely agree with what you said that all the way we experience the world, right? The, what we, the thoughts we have about what happens to us, the emotional responses we have about, you know, to what happens to us and the things we do about what happened to us uh, are all driven by what we believe about what happens to us, what we believe the significance of events are. And those things are really difficult to change. So what we argue is the first step literally is becoming mindful of the, that those beliefs are in operation to actually mm. look at those beliefs in a conscious way and examine them and challenge them and sort of step outside them to a degree and ask yourself, you know, even though emotionally you seem to be in the grip of this particular belief, for example, the belief that pleasure equals happiness, that you have to keep seeking out physical pleasure after physical pleasure to be happy, you may, you, it may have you in a script, but if you even begin to, to examine that intellectually, and say, is this really true? And really ask yourself that from a position of curiosity, not from a biased position where you are, you know, intrinsically uh, motivated to hang on to the belief and convince yourself that it is true, but to really be curious, like, what if it isn't true? What if I'm wrong? And, and I'm really deluded about this. And ask yourself that question is often the, the beginning of uh, freeing yourself from that delusion. You know, Ash talked about how 
he had an epiphany when he realized he really did believe that in order to be happy, he had to do everything in his power to avoid feeling pain. And mm. when he became conscious that that was true for him, that I, and he can speak to this better than I can, but I, I listened to him talk about this and watched him do it. He just realized that's really not true. And, and I, my guess is, and Ash, you can speak to this, that that belief still rears its head. It still gets stirred up. But now there's a part of him that recognizes when it does that it's not true. And he can actually, you know, have a, a discussion with himself and say, yeah, you're feeling that again, but that's really not true. So I'm not going to let that belief, you know, drive my, my decision making. Yeah, and, and and by the way, let me build on that. And then Alex, I think, should talk about the meditation piece because there's a really interesting aspect of why that gets you sort of part of the way there right. to this idea of alignment, right, but not but not quite not quite all the way there. But as you know, you know, Lisa, I, I was trained as a cognitive therapist, and so I, I'm a strong believer, as you know, in, in terms as co- in cognitive psychology, which is it's really about you know the, your your mental health is really driven by your you know your core belief systems now. Cognitive therapy doesn't really talk about you know belief, these core beliefs about or that we argue about here, which is you believe know, about what happiness is. But nonetheless, the power of beliefs is, is is kind of omnipresent in the whole in the whole study of psychology, correct? And a lot of times, what we have to do as psychologists is to actually help people uncover. It's like an excavation process of excavating what, what you know what are the beliefs most of the time not even conscious to people that are driving these behaviors or these fears yes. all the stuff that they can't understand yes. and you have to be careful you have to be careful because if you know if you expose it too quickly they're not ready for it and you and you shatter that belief then they sort of start wanting you know they don't know what to cling to so you have to kind of help people construct health of your beliefs around that so whether it's a more superficial belief um, or that's not as core as what happiness is it, it, regardless it's all about how your external world it stirs up certain beliefs in you. We, we talk about the metaphor in the in the in the book, which I think is one of the most powerful, which is the concept of the, you know stirring up a glass of water. And that if you have a glass of water, which is sort of your life condition or your the way you experience in the world, and at the bottom is a certain amount of sediment, which are your beliefs. When something comes and stirs that water, you know how how your life condition gets sort of colored is not dependent on what's the stirring, right? It's, it depends on the sediment, which is your beliefs. And for some people, you know, if it stirs up negative beliefs, that water becomes cloudy and your life becomes sort of dark. For other people, it might stir up the exact same event, could stir up something very empowering and, and, and it gets colored with something more, much more beautiful. So what's, what's different is not nothing to do with, with the stirring or the spoon. It's all, all to do with those, those beliefs. And I, so that's why we believe that the core, you know, beliefs are at the center of, of everything when it comes to happiness. I'll let Alex talk about, I, I think, the meditation piece. I think there's some interesting aspects to that. Okay. Yeah, so um, as a meditator, obviously, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, all the studies that talk about the numerous benefits of meditation. Uh, yes. But even just becoming more aware of one's inner processes, uh, you know, often through just beginning by focusing on the breath, you know, a physical process. But the, the ultimate goal is to sort of become an observer of one's own mind. Uh, and then different types of meditation have different goals. Uh, some meditation uh, has as its goal uh, perception of the illusion of the self and a freeing for the self. Other types of meditation, like chanting, which is something I've been doing when I was uh, practicing Buddhism, um, have a different goal, which is more um, the discovery of wisdom. And, and what's fascinating about this, uh, specifically with respect to the type of meditation that's you know related to chanting, is that we're actually beginning to puzzle uh, puzzle out what's going on in the brain when people do these different types of meditations that actually. Um, might bring people to awakening experiences, sort of a discovery 
sort of that having those aha moments, you have a sudden flash of insight into a truth about yourself that isn't intellect, doesn't yield just an intellectual understanding, but an emotional change. Like you, you literally free yourself a belief that, that you may not even had consciously been aware you were, were being governed by. And, and what, what the science is suggesting, and this, uh, I want to preface this by saying that this is by no means written in stone or, or definitively concluded, but, but some intriguing studies are suggesting that there's this phenomenon called um, uh, hypofrontality, where okay. the frontal lobe of the brain, which, is the ho- which sort of houses the executive functions of the brain, the part of the brain that we identify as being us, sort of our autobiographical self, and the part of the brain that self-examines, um, it, it's a very energy-intensive part of the brain, and that there are certain things that we do that, you know, uh, downregulate the activity in that part of the brain and upregulate uh, activities in the lower parts of the brain that then begin talking to one another in a way that they are inhibited from doing when that frontal lobe is really active and kind of, you know, the, the orchestra conductor very carefully controlling the orchestra. And that the notion is when the frontal lobe kind of quiets down, the orchestra can, can still produce beautiful music that's often quite different. And what's interesting is uh, this gets to the, the idea of sort of um, unconscious uh, thought processing and the, the creation of insight and that the wisdom that comes from the, the, the liberation of the unconscious mind is often far more profound and life-changing than that comes from, you know, conscious, straightforward, ahead problem solving. And so fascinatingly, things like chanting, other forms of meditation, exercise, you know, people who are walking around or being, or we'll talk about, they get to be their most creative. The theory is it's because as the, the frontal lobe quiets down, the unconscious parts of our brain that makes these creative uh, connections suddenly gets very active. And, and what I have found in my practice is that when I do that with a determination that I'm going to solve a problem that I can't figure out, and, and often that problem is a life problem that's causing me to suffer, the creative parts of my mind, my unconscious mind, begin to function. And often an, an answer is just presented to me, and it's, and it's an insight mm-hmm. that's accompanied by this, this sort of joy of insight. And what I discover as time goes on is that was a transformative moment. It was not an intellectual understanding only. It was an emotional change. Thank you for that, Dr. Alex. Dr. Ash, I, I just jotted down a note from a few minutes ago because I don't want to lose it before we're, we're done, is you, you mentioned about I'm curious, what does get us all the way there? We're talking about components of shifting, transitioning. I'm thinking from a lower level world towards enlightenment. What what does get us there? And maybe for you both to answer that. Yeah, I can, I can talk about what gets us almost there. And I think Alex is much more articulate and what gets you uh, all the way there. Great. So I, I think that what gets get you part of uh, a lot of the, a couple things. First of all, challenging yourself to understand exactly what those beliefs are. And you can kind of go through just a very logical process of kind of deconstructing that for yourself by, you know, asking yourself, you know, what do you think, what really makes you happy? What are those things that really make you happy? Ask yourself how those, well, those things serve you. Being more conscious around the times those beliefs are stirred up for you and then challenging them. And that, that process will move you closer and closer to realizing that those beliefs are not really serve, always serving you the, be, the right, the best way, and and hopefully that will allow you to less and less have your happiness being dependent on these beliefs, which by definition are going to lead you to certain attachments. Mm-hmm. Their very nature are going to be temporary, and so so the, getting part of the way there is realizing that 
you know, when these beliefs are activated, in a lot of ways, there are delusions and that, you know, deriving too much of your happiness from attachments is not the way toward ultimate happiness because it's going to just lead you down a path that's going to be very temporary and fragile. I think that that's the first step. And then the next step I think Alex can describe is realizing that there is a different and potentially and, and a, a better and more enduring type of happiness that does not come from attachments. And then it's about how do you start inducing that sense of awe for yourself? And I think Alex can talk a little bit more about that. Okay. Yeah. And I guess I, I would start by saying, you know, attachment is not bad, right? The issue is not that we should, we should, uh, refuse attachment and, and, and care about nothing and, and uh, detach from all things. That, that's not a joyful life either. But it is to hold them in the, in the correct perspective and to, to enjoy them while we have them, but to release them when we lose them, as we invariably do. You know, the, 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 the secret main reason Ash and I wrote this book is because we are trying to inspire everybody to aim for the life condition of enlightenment and, and, to, and to learn to see the world as a child with, with uh, awe and to see awe in everyday things because that emotion is what's predominantly when you believe everything you're looking at is sublime. When you see that, when you perceive that. The way you experience the other nine worlds and your life and the attachment is, is fundamentally transformed. And I don't mean to get, um, to get too, uh, you know, spacey or, or uh, fruity it's about okay. this. But it's more, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, it really, this is a, a, a life's condition that really is available to us all. And it is available, but like everything else, it requires practice and, and cultivation. And it requires effort. And if you are willing to put in the effort, you know, since we wrote this book, I have been, uh, you know, we write about the possible techniques by which you can induce awe on yourself. And I've been practicing those techniques and finding myself more and more having moments where I am actually feeling the emotion of awe and perceiving the world around me as, as beautifully sublime and, and, uh, and releasing that type of, transcendent joy that I would love to make my permanent life state. And I think it's, it's the real answer is this is not easy. It's like any training for anything. Uh, you have to aim at it, but it is absolutely worth it. And in doing so and establishing that life state, the degree to which those other four delusions will, will have sway over you uh, will diminish of their own accord. You won't have to struggle to fight your, your desire to be superior to everyone. Uh, it, it will simply not be stirred up for you. Because the joy that you experience in the tenth world, the world of light, is so much greater than the joy you may feel at feeling superior to others, or experiencing physical pleasure, or avoiding that painful experience. Yeah, it, it sounds a little. I don't want to sound corny either, but like one of the ways I've been inducing it for myself more and more is actually through watching my kids and what's and what, uh, watching, yeah. and watching very specifically how they move from like what seems like massive pain to all within the next month. Like you know, you've seen kids, they, something happens, they're crying. They're, you see, they seem devastated. And you're like, if this is an adult, they're probably going to be suffering and ruminating about this for weeks. But like right. literally, literally three minutes later, my, 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 my son is in awe and like is experiencing amazing joy over something else that they're in awe of. Like we, you know, there must be something about, and I haven't really talked about this much, but there must be something about how, you know, as we go through life, we probably unlearn this in all kinds of interesting ways of unlearning how to experience awe. And because at the end of the day, our beliefs are based on our experiences and more and more as we go throughout our life, it's probably just reinforcing the fact that, you know, there are certain things to fear and certain beliefs that we want to cling to. And we move further and further and further away from our, that sense of wonderment about the amazing things that we experience in, in the world. And so I try to recapture through, through their eyes. I know that's, 
and, and but more or less watching their resilience. And that to me, that inspires me and sends me in, in, in wonderment more than anything else. That's my that's my personally how I've done it. Yeah, I think there's such wisdom there of of letting go of of relearning things that we let go of as children and coming back to them and and realizing that we kind of had it innately working for us in the beginning and then allowed other people, places and things to distract us from that path and to re- come back to this inner dialogue of more support for ourselves. Yep. Yeah. I you really know, I like really Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, saying, I really like the phrase sense of wonderment, because if you think about it, if you watch a baby, you know, an infant who is discovering a toy for the first time, you literally can see the soul of wonderment on their face, their, their, the way their eyes light up. And I think to some degree, as we go older, we just get used to everything in the world. It becomes just part of the background of the scenery. We forget just how wondrous the world is. And that's why I think to, to, it's not that we, we, we have to pause and look for that sense of wonderment, you know, even in, a, in, in the pattern of a wood floor or the pattern of clouds above our heads, this, again, sounds a little corny and a little, a little goofy, but the truth is if you pause and seek to find that sense of wonderment, those things again, and recapture that childlike perspective, that I think is, is, is the, the pathway in, the doorway into the world of enlightenment. I just want to thank you both, Dr. Alex and you, Dr. Ash, for taking your time out today. And just lastly, where can listeners, where's the best place for listeners to get your book? Yeah, uh, well, they, first of all, if they want to find out what world they, we think they come from, there's a quick three or five minute assessment you can do on our site, thepenworlds.com, and you can find out what world you're from, and that will help you understand maybe what belief has you in their grip. It's kind of fun and interesting and has obviously caused a lot of discussions among people when they do that. Uh, and then our book is available you know, anywhere books are sold, Amazon or Barnes Nobles or wherever you uh, or your local bookstore. Um, you can find it there. You guys, thank you so much. Today was such a treat for me. And I'd love to stay in touch. I hope you have a good flight, Dr. Ash and Dr. Alex. Thank you for, for being with us. Thank you. We really had a great time. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That concludes my show for this week with Drs. Ash and Alex, co-authors of The Ten Worlds, The New Psychology of Happiness. I am wishing everyone listening just the most wonderful week, all of my love, and I look forward to being back with you next week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You're listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir only on LA Talk Radio. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.